0: Indianapolis has been ranked as the worst city in America for food deserts in recent years, and food insecurity has increased amongst Hoosiers last year despite a decrease nationally. Thus far, this problem has been left up to neighborhoods to address themselves through community kitchens, food banks, and gardens. This week on Noon Edition, our panel will dissect some of the underlying causes of food deserts and insecurity and their solutions after this hour's news. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU-WTIU bureau chief, Sarah Whitmire, Indianapolis recently was ranked as the worst city for food deserts in the nation, and Indiana as a a whole saw an increase in food insecurity last year, even as the nationwide rate fell. This week uh, on Noon Edition, we're going to talk about those issues and more, including the uh, news recently that the marsh stores in Indiana are in jeopardy of all closing their doors, which would leave some communities without a grocery store. Altogether, we have two guests in the studio and one guest joining us by phone. Cynthia Stone is here in the studio. She's a clinical professor of uh, in the School of Public Health at IUPUI, and Lily Brown is a PhD candidate in anthropology and food studies at Indiana University here in Bloomington. We also have Nathan Kring, who's uh, the Tipton County Economic Development Organization Executive Director, joining us from Tipton. You can join us on the program at 812-8550-811 here in bloomington or one 285 9348 outside the bloomington area and you can uh, join us also on twitter at noon edition so this show was sort of prompted by uh the the report um, that came out from Walk Score that said Indiana or Indianapolis ranks the worst in the nation for the percentage of people who have easy access to food. And also by the news from Marsh, I think that's got a lot of people sort of shaken up. I want to turn to Cynthia Stone first and ask you to sort of frame this issue of food deserts. Can you give us a definition and and why is it such a big issue?
1: Sure. Thank you. Okay. So the food desert term comes from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and it's based on having a low income neighborhood percentage and then it's also by the distance you have to travel to get access to a full service grocery store. Mm -hmm. So from an urban area if it's more than one mile to have access or for a rural area it's more than 10 miles to have access and you have that lower income neighborhood then you could qualify as a food desert. Mm -hmm. And there are over 500 Indiana neighborhoods that are currently identified as food deserts.
0: Does, does this have to do with, um, you know, the kind of food that's available? Like, I know we, a lot of people talk about fresh foods and vegetables being available. Is that part of the issue?
1: It is. It mm-hmm. is a focus on access to healthy foods. Because mm-hmm. The one area in Indianapolis that we did an analysis, uh, they did have access to 10 Uh, convenience stores, Mm -hmm. and we did a survey using a tool called the Nutrition Environment Measurement Survey and it looks at the kinds of foods available, how affordable are they, and what's the quality of what's available. And Mm -hmm. out of those 10 we only found two that had any fresh fruits and vegetables, and one of those it was just a basket of a couple of apples and oranges at the cash register. Um, Mm -hmm. And most of them did have some access to skim milk, And uh, juice, maybe a low sugar cereal, but they did not, um, they had them at quite a a higher cost. Mm -hmm. So that one orange or apple was a dollar versus you could go to the grocery store, full service grocery store, and get a pound for 60 cents. So Mm -hmm. quite a difference in the quality and cost and Mm -hmm. what was available.
2: Our mm-hmm. food banks are those figured at all into what we consider a food desert? If there's a food bank or a community garden or anything like that in that area, or is no, that different? it's okay. not.
1: It's yeah, those are certainly other resources that you would want to help encourage to have that fresh food available, but it's not part of the definition that the USDA uses.
0: So I want to ask Lily to uh, to sort of follow up on that. I mean, from your your studies and, and your interests, I mean, why are you interested in this topic?
3: Um. Well. Uh, initially, uh, I was asked to speak here about food deserts and have mm-hmm. done some research on food deserts. Um, I think the, one of the m- most interesting issues is the fact that, um, you know, the term food deserts itself is actually a fairly contentious term. Mm-hmm. The definition is sort of unclear. The USDA does have a working definition, um, but there are a number of social scientists who've uh, problematized. Um, the concept of food deserts itself, and actually, the term goes back to Scotland. From the night, it was the first person to use the term "food deserts" was in Scotland in like the early 1990s. Um, and then the USDA picked it up later. And um, the distance part of it is interesting because social scientists have since started to think about food deserts as more than just a spatial problem, but really a problem of social structure, right? Um, and so when you look at retail location, it's really hard to say what that describes in terms of food security in a particular area. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that low-income consumers may, are likely not to shop at their, uh, the closest retailer to them. Um, Walmart is a popular choice because the food costs are so low. Um, and I think that that's, that's what interests me coming mm-hmm.
0: here. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we have Nathan Kring. Uh, I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, right, Nathan? Yes, you are. Okay, good. Uh, Nathan's from Tipton County. And uh, one of the reasons we have Nathan on today is because there is a Marsh store in Tipton, correct? Yes. And, and it's, uh, you may very well lose it.
4: Yes. Okay. Uh, we're a 20-mile uh, by 13-mile county, and it is our only um, full-service grocery store.
0: Okay, so what would it mean to you to to lose that store? I mean, obviously it would have a major impact on your community and and you see it from the economic development standpoint.
4: Right. so from an economic development perspective, it is it is uh, an arduous task at best to attract and retain families when you when you don't have a grocery store in your entire county. Um, but I also see this through a um, a perspective as a resident and um, someone who cares about Tipton being from here. so, um, a lot of, of of Tipton is aging. It's an older communi- community, and the problem is exacerbated by the uh, our transportation issues. So we have a lot of senior citizens that cannot drive outside the county. Um, we have a lot. We have a low uh, SES socioeconomic status classes within city limits that cannot um, transport themselves to a Kroger in Noblesville or Kokomo, and it's it's. Uh, I want to hit on the, the convenience store aspect. We use ESRI data. Uh, marketing tools to try to figure out who we're going to attract and retain business-wise, and we found out that 3,300 residents of our 15,000 spent $100 or more four times a month plus at a convenience store in Tipton County. And now some of that, I'm sure, and that does not count gas, so some of that I'm sure is lottery, t- uh, cigarettes, lottery tickets, et cetera, but I have to believe that a good majority of that is people that have no access to affordable food that are going to convenience stores they're purchasing overpriced um, undernourished uh, goods and services. So uh, it is a big issue for us um, without access to good food, uh, it definitely um, puts a hindrance on economic development.
2: So what can be done to get these to get a grocery store to want to stay in a place like Tipton County or come to Tipton County from your perspective as the head of economic development?
4: Well, it's it's important to remember um, that the Tipton branch of Marsh is not closing because um, of a of a micro problem here in Tipton. The Tipton branch was actually very very profitable. Um, the fact that it didn't close among all the rounds of, of, of closings is a testament to its profitability and its its staff. Um, it is a very profitable branch, um, but you you know a lot of times you don't want to incent commercial development. But in this case, it's something that you definitely need in your community. So we've been very proactive. We do have interested um, buyers. We have interested grocers that are willing to, to come to this market and and take the demand. The thing we want to look at, and the city officials and I have been working on this, is we don't want necessarily a grocery chain that's going to come in and serve um, and, pro- and provide, um, you know, preservative packed foods, undernourished foods, or um, that lack nutrients. There are grocery chains that are like that that will have uh, generic brands that are usually not good. And if you look at um, people who come from a lower-income class, uh, they often have health issues and that those can often be exacerbated by um, access to those bad foods like at convenience stores or lower-end chain grocery stores.
0: All right, we're talking about food deserts and uh, Food Insecurity today on Noon Edition. We have three guests, Cynthia Stone and Lily Brown are both here in the studio. Cynthia Stone is Clinical Professor of the School of Public Health at IUPUI, and Lily Brown is a PhD candidate in Anthropology and Food Studies at IU. And you just heard Nathan Kring, who's Tipton County's Economic Development Organization Executive Director. If you want to join us on the program, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington. Are 1-877-285-9348, outside the Bloomington area. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. So I wanted to, to follow up on Sarah's question and ask it in more of a, I guess, more of a macro way. I mean, food deserts, or the, the term food deserts, has come to mean a lot of neighborhoods, a lot of low-income neighborhoods. And, you know, this is sort of, an, in a lot of ways, it's an economic problem. I've, if it's, our, our, we do live in a capitalist system, and if people aren't profitable with a grocery store in a particular neighborhood, they move out and that creates this this vacuum. Um, What kind of broader solutions might there be? Can you suggest some things?
1: Well, One of the things our study in the northeast neighborhood was to do was to help inform a city council, Indianapolis City Council um, referendum that the councilwoman proposed for a tax increment financing district to be put in this neighborhood as a way to encourage a grocery store to come. There's also, across Indiana, it's called the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, and that's through the Indiana Healthy Food Access Coalition. And it's the same kind of things, trying to make um, financing available. One of the things that came out of our health impact assessment report recommendations from the the neighborhood was, what if we could put a refrigerated uh, units in the convenience stores. So at least they could have frozen fresh vegetables and frozen fruits available, and perhaps some other better meats that you know, could be maintained that way. That wouldn't be a, a very expensive way to, pry, to increase the amount of fresh fruits available, uh, available from at least those convenience stores that they did have. Mm-hmm. Now that would be sort of a short term way that you still would like you know, better to have fresh available. But at least it would get that option, mm-hmm. um, or see if you could negotiate some shelving space for canned foods with lower sodium kind of products in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know some of the things. that it is it is definitely you know very much econ- economically driven. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I've been told, there's a very low margin on food anyway. And the other thing to attract a new grocery store, you almost have to guarantee a gas station can be put there or some other. Um, stores, a pharmacy perhaps within the store to, to to get that, you know, traffic coming in and at sort of higher margins. <laughs> yeah,
0: or a, a Starbucks.
1: Right, <laughs> right. stores exactly.
0: Nathan, I wanted to ask you to, to follow up on that because um, Cynthia had a couple of terms that are very familiar in the economic development world, uh, a TIF and, a, and the Healthy Foods Financing Initiative. Can you, you explain what, what those kinds of incentives are?
4: Well, tax incremental financing is used in a uh, – Definitely used a lot in Indianapolis Carmel. Um, Tipton actually only has one, and it's at the 2831 interchange. Um, it's tough for rural communities to use tax incremental financing because um, it definitely funnels off a portion of your taxes um, away from schools, um, police, fire protection, public services. So in a rural community, tips are usually not used or they can't be used. The, the mathematics just doesn't work out. Financial analysis just doesn't work out. But we um the city gets a portion of uh, economic development income taxes, and we have found creative ways to leverage those um, similar uh, in a similar fashion to TIF, and we will be using something like that to incent um, a grocery store
0: now if i if I uh, understand it right, so a TIF is that in that area all the all the taxes that come into that area are reused in that particular area, right?
4: Yeah, so they'll freeze the current tax base, and that tax, uh, let's say the tax base is $10,000 before any development occurs. That $10,000 will continue to go to schools and public services, but anything um, above and beyond that will go uh, reinvested back into that TIF area. Um, It cannot be used uh, back at the schools, uh, back for public services, without some – very excruciating and long-term planning by a redevelopment commission.
0: Okay, thanks. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. So, Lily, I wanted to give you that same question about solutions and ideas.
3: Solutions to to
0: to just if, because we have this, uh, you know, this system that rewards uh, profit basically. In some of these areas that are, are found without a grocery store or a place to find healthy foods, it's because the a business, a private business, can't create that kind of profit
3: right. right um i think there are two different issues here I, I think it sounds like tipton county is likely to have a grocery store fairly soon mm-hmm. is that true mm-hmm. Nathan? they, they have marsh it,
4: um you know it there's definitely a lot of interest because of the profitability of the previous marsh store um but it's never assured in, in, in a capitalist system has been mentioned it's never a sure deal because you don't know if that profitability is real because mm-hmm. we'd they're not sharing that proprietary information. It's basically based on estimations of their sales.
3: Right. And so, I mean, y- you feel that there's a consumer base that would support another supermarket and you would like to have a supermarket there for convenience. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and the other thing, the other issue that I think is at play here is, um, okay, so in Indianapolis you have a slightly different is- issue because you're talking about an urban area. Mm-hmm. Um, so. If we're talking about the problem of food deserts and food access, I mean you have a very different context. So, I mean Tipton County ideally would have a grocery store that you guys could access, and I, I sympathize with you. And, and it's, um, it's you are in a precarious position. Um, in Indianapolis, it's a kind of different problem because i I'm, I'm curious where um, low-income consumers in places that you call food deserts are accessing their foods. And, um, you know, if the problem that we're talking about really
1: is just, is poverty in that context.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I would say it definitely is poverty. And, and one of the other neighborhoods we've worked in, uh, the Northwest neighborhood, which is sort of just, again, just off of downtown really, um, they had a double eight grocery store, which was a pretty small footprint anyway, and they, it closed two years ago. And so they've tried a variety of initiatives to try and, on their own, bring food in, not waiting for another door to open or, you know, they, for, they did a temporary, uh, the churches provided transportation to bus people out to grocery stores for the first few months, but that wasn't viable for them to maintain for a very long time. So some of the things that they've done, they did a project with uh, Purdue Extension, and they did a um, sort of urban farming initiative with them to teach them about how to be an entrepreneur as an urban farmer. And they also got some vacant lots for like a dollar a year that they could rent to to start their urban farms. Uh, The Flanner House in particular is opening the Flanner Farm. Uh, They've already started to break ground. They have some community gardens in the front of their property. And then in the back part, they're actually having you know, a bigger farming area, and they will be making the community gardens available to anybody to use, and then they hope to distribute to the neighborhood from the farm. Um, We also worked with their preschool, and they are doing a little um, planting and growing project that we've been working with them as well. They have their own fenced-in area for their raised beds. And then there's another community group called the Pepper Pepper Institute that's done a community food initiative based on the fresh uh, stops, Fresh Starts program out of Louisville. And what they did is they uh, contracted with different farmers around the area and they sold shares. And a share is based on the size of your household and your income. And they also take um, SNAP cards as well. And so a week before they're going to have the food distribution, they gather up how many people want to buy a share of the food. Then they take that money and purchase whatever fresh food is available from the farmers they've contracted with then they come deliver the food and then they use volunteers to divide the food into shares they also have a cooking class as part of that to get an idea of how to use the foods that are available in that share and they've been able to though in in uh, june will be their one year anniversary they were even able to find one farmer who had a greenhouse and could continue the program over the winter which has been the louisville problem they have to stop in november and don't start again till this you know June, mm-hmm. so that's I think some really creative ways for the neighborhoods to bring fresh food in when they don't have anything else available but convenience stores
0: mm-hmm. Lily
3: so Nathan, I want to pose the same question to you um, in Tipton County, to what extent do you feel like the problem that your community is facing stems from poverty itself
4: well it's it's getting um, it's getting more crucial every year so Our free and reduced lunch rates are actually going up um, about 10% per year since 2006. Um, The low-to-mod income data for the city is going up uh, pretty drastically. And then the problem is if you look at Tipton and you just look at our census data for the county, we do not look like a low-to-mod income county. Our population is 15,000, but most of the wealth is is not concentrated in the city. It's the landowners and the farmers and the agribusinesses around Tipton. And then if you just look inside city limits, you say Tipton is a very um, poor community. I think the per capita income is $19,000. And we don't have any public transportation. Now we do have the Encore Center, which is our senior citizen center that provides public transportation for seniors. And they only have one van and medical appointments take precedence. So that is not a viable option really to get seniors food. So as we become, uh, we're starting to trend towards more and more poverty. I think that's why we're seeing more and more people um, get access to foods at our convenience stores, which is not a good thing at all. Um, And somehow marsh stayed very profitable. Um, We do have affluent people that do live in Tipton, but we heard from a lot of people that marsh produce, marsh meats, and marsh uh, products were too expensive. So I think a, as we move forward um, poverty low moderate income will definitely play a big part in, in how uh, people access food and tip them
3: yeah that's interesting because it sounds like potentially the opening of another grocery store might not really solve the issue of food insecurity
4: right and I would agree with that it's it's really um, access to that food mm-hmm. um, if you live five miles from it but you don't have a car or you don't have to a- access public transportation, does that really solve your problem? And as people are needing, you know, every year we have more and more people that need some access to public transportation that we don't have, just because we have a grocery store didn't necessarily solve our problem. It Mm -hmm. solved the problem for the people who have the means to travel, but not the seniors or the low-income to families.
3: Right. And it sounds like also the cost of food and um, is also a prohibitive barrier for low-income consumers.
4: It is, and that, that's what's scary to me is um, it's always, right now it's a lot cheaper to go ahead and buy 10 frozen pizzas than a bunch of um, fresh meat and produce, at least in Tipton. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: I, just, I just want to throw this out to the panel just because I, this is an observation for me, and I guess I want to get your reaction. It seems ironic that we're talking about Tipton and Tipton County, which has um, high wealth in people who actually produce food and mm-hmm. grow food and we're talking about it as a place where there's food insecurity. That just seems like an irony to me.
1: I think part of it is the food that's, pro- the food that the farmers are producing is not really for human consumption. It's been more for, you know, cattle and, and others. So we, we don't have as much fresh food produced for human consumption as, as you might think. Okay.
4: The I would, that's completely accurate. Okay. Um, most of it is, uh, feed corn that is made into things that um, maybe we eventually will eat, but it's not consumed readily. And, um, you know, we do have one of one of the larger food processors in Tipton um, located in city limits. But again, that is not processed here and then served locally. It's shipped out nationwide to chain restaurants.
0: Okay. Well... I, I understand that, and, you know, I am i don't want to sound really too naive, but it's still a, an area where food can be grown as opposed right. to, like, an inner-city neighborhood where it's really difficult to find the land where you could actually grow enough food to support people.
2: Right. So what you're saying is, like, why not find that niche to have a large-scale produce farm or something maybe in its place? And I, I
0: guess that's what I'm saying.
2: Something, something like that. Right.
4: I agree that it is it is ironic. I was actually thinking about that earlier today, that a, a county known for agriculture is struggling with food, mm-hmm. and and just the irony in that concept. But it, out of this, um, I, I would call it so, somewhat of a tragedy, and Tipton is born, a lot of people are starting to come forward, and we have actually in the front of my office uh, a young man is going to try a vertical grow farm using hydroponics. Um, the community gardens that have been discussed, these are all ideas that are, starting to really come um, to light and I think they're really going to be implemented because Tipton does a very good job at coming together in times of of trouble. So I think out of this you're going to see born a lot of unique ideas. A lot of people band together and say well why can't we just grow this on one of the 50 FEMA lots that the city owns? Why can't we have vertical grow farms? Why can't we just produce this here locally and, and get that access to those seniors and those families that need it?
0: All right. Thank you for the discussion. We're going to have to take a short break now. You're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about food insecurity and food deserts and uh, issues of uh, how to get um, healthy food to the uh, the largest number of people. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from The Herald Times along with Sarah Whitmire, the WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief. We have uh, three guests with us today, and we're talking about food insecurity and and issues that are related to that. Cynthia Stone is a clinical professor in the School of Public Health at IUPUI. Uh, Lily Brown is a Ph.D. candidate in anthropology and food studies at IU in Bloomington. And Nathan Kring is Tipton County Economic Development Organization Executive Director. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or one 285 9348 outside of the Bloomington area, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon, noon Edition.
2: This whole conversation has had me thinking if if you build these grocery stores, will people necessarily come to these communities? And Lily, you had referenced something. At the beginning of the show, that people don't necessarily go to the grocery store nearest to them mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. So I'm curious your your thoughts on is just building a store in a neighborhood the solution?
3: Yeah. In geography, we uh, we call we call that a spatial fix. So if you describe food deserts as a spatial problem, then the spatial fix would be to build retail locations in places that don't currently have grocery stores. Um, there is not very good evidence at this point that building a grocery store in a food desert really changes people's consumption habits because there are so many other barriers at play in food insecurity. Um, A lot of consumers uh, in Bloomington, for example, do not choose their nearest retail location because they can access food for lower prices or perhaps maybe more culturally appropriate food from other places. Um, So did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess then
2: what is it? If just putting the store isn't enough, how can we how can we do it so we can actually feed more people and that if we do have these healthy options that people want them and they actually purchase them and what's the solution here? Yeah,
1: well, I don't know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, solution because yeah. it's a lot of different things that are contributing, but I mean, the feedback from the neighborhood that we were trying to get the data around, you know, what would the impact be of a full service grocery store? They were very specific about the, f- the size of the footprint that they wanted. They had actually, about eight years before we worked with them, had a box store in their in their neighborhood. And that was the, the neighbors didn't have enough space to store large numbers of items, and they didn't have the income to purchase large n- numbers of items. Most of them shop every day or every other day, and they buy just what they need, <coughs> excuse me, for that short period of time, with the money that's available. So they were very specific about what kind of foods they wanted offered, that they didn't want a huge mega store, they wanted a smaller footprint that um, they could have more input into the kind of foods that would be available. Um, And they also were interested in some cooking classes on how to better prepare healthy food, which also we found out they also needed access to sometimes pots and pans to be able to cook. A lot of times people don't even have, you know, the sort of basic cooking utensils, even if they wanted to learn how to cook. Um, so one of the things in the neighborhood that we are working with, they actually put in a community kitchen, and the, they were going to do some um, cooking classes and some nutrition educations. So they wanted things labeled, so they would have a sense of which of the choices which would be the healthier choice. Um, mm-hmm. In public health, we often have a saying is we want to try and make the healthy choice the easy choice. And so, you know, whatever we can do to let people know, you'll see that somewhat in the menu labeling people are doing, right? So if you know that this is a 500 calories and this is 200 calories, maybe you would pick the 200 calorie item more often than the 500 calories. So whatever we can do to help get the fresh food available and make it the easier thing to get, and maybe more affordable thing to get, then hopefully people will be able to have that as an option for them.
2: I wonder how we scale those efforts up. When you talk about those, I think maybe that helps a dozen people or something. But if we're talking about what would you say, five hundred <laughs> neighborhoods mm-hmm. impacted by this, I'm just wondering, yeah, how how we do that.
1: Yeah, we have a lot of work. <laughs> and, well,
0: and it's such a, I mean, I think we've all, you've all identified the fact that it's a multifaceted issue. Yeah. I think one thing that, that Nathan has brought up a couple of times, and I like Lily's feedback on this, too, is the uh, transportation issue. That you know, when when Lily talks about people don't always go to the grocery store's closest, Nathan talks about there's no public transit mm-hmm. in Tipton. So, you know, these things seem to work together. Mm-hmm. Right, Nathan?
4: I agree, and I, I'm not an expert like, like the other two guests. Um, certainly Aww. not even close. But um, I do have, you know, some thoughts. And the way the state has restructured education, um, our schools have had to make concessions. And by and large, those concessions have come um, in one way by cutting home economics class. So for mm-hmm. a decade and a half, maybe a little more, we have not had home econo- economics class. So what you have is um, a generational societal problem in Tipton where it's, in, it's education about food. It's, well, I eat this because mom and dad served it to me, and, and more than likely they're going to do the same thing with their kids, but they don't really understand the nutrients or the, diet, the dietetics behind what they're consuming. Um, so what you'll see in Tipton is um, a lot of people will buy five or six Fountain Cokes a day without a, without a second thought, not knowing that I could take that $6 I just spent and probably buy something a little better for myself. A, it's a societal problem, and, and in, I wish we could RAMP that up in our school systems because I agree educating only a dozen at a time is not is not going to solve the issue fast enough, so in TIPTON and I would love to see us get back into the um, you know teaching our kids and our children about um, nutrition because it's it's definitely lacking and it's being reflected in dietary choices by our kids and young adults
3: um Nathan, first, I have to disagree with you. I think you are an expert on this <laughs> issue. Not um,
4: even close. I only know what my wife tells me, and she is a graduate student at IUPUI in public health. So I that's great. <laughs>
3: um, and, and, you know, in the social the, – the work that's been done from a research perspective uh, would actually agree with you that cooking skills are one of the greatest barriers um, to food security, um, and, and that's in the U.S. and also abroad. Wondering if we should be focusing more broadly just on the issues of poverty Mm -hmm. instead of
2: thinking so much about building groceries.
0: And I I, I think Bloomington has an example of that. We have Mother Hubbard's cupboard here in in Bloomington, which basically is a food pantry, and it serves people without, it's mostly low-income people, virtually all low-income people, but there are no means tests or anything like that. But they're very focused on healthy options, and they're very focused on education. You're familiar with that, Lily? Have you been there?
3: Uh, I have not.
0: Uh, Not okay. All right. Well, you should study it. You should look at
3: it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) How? I mean, how can we improve? We have a question just asking how we can improve access to healthy restaurant options, not simply cheap fast food. Do you have any thoughts on that? Cynthia? Uh,
1: there's there's a term that's been sort of coined, because what, what you see ironically also in some of these neighborhoods are fast food is, is what is available, right? Right. So we sometimes call those food swamps, because <laughs> the opposite of the desert, they have food, but it's not, again, always healthy food. Um, and we do know that all of these things contribute to more chronic disease in these same populations. They have higher levels of obesity, so then they have higher levels of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So you know, we're compounding, you know, negative health effects by the, the food access that people have as well. Um, yeah, we're, but there's a a lot of initiatives going on to try and look at, you know, how do we make healthier communities? And so all of these issues are, are important to consider. You know, are, are people able to work? Do we have a healthy workforce that can go to work? Do we have an educated workforce that can do the jobs that are required? So, I mean, They're all huge issues, and they all compound the the issues, problems that we're talking about today. Mm
3: -hmm. I think there's another really interesting point to be made here, which is that um, you know, for McDonald's, for example, is actually not a very affordable option for people, for low-income consumers at households. Okay, so it costs twenty-eight dollars to feed a family of four at McDonald's. For most people, that's more. That's a lot of money. And so, actually, the the consumer base for McDonald's is actually um, middle-income, cl- middle low-to-middle-and-middle-income consumers and not necessarily low-income consumers.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I guess I w- have
2: just a follow-up to that, though, is like if, if you're saying, Cynthia, people don't even have kitchen utensils, when you consider the investment it might take to cook a meal, then McDonald's might look pretty good mm-hmm. in terms
3: of the the out-of-pocket costs in that moment. Yeah, but like I said, I mean, $28 is a lot of money to feed a family of four. Yeah. Right, Yeah, right.
0: All right, if you have questions or comments, 812 811 in Bloomington, or one-eight-seven-seven-two-eight-five-nine-three-four-eight 285 9348 outside the Bloomington area, and you can also follow us on Twitter, at In addition, uh, you know, Bloomington is kind of a unique situation. I think when it comes to this, although you know, there are certainly pockets of Bloomington where there are a lot of low-income people, and um, one of the Marsh stores that has already announced it's going to close, no matter what happens. I guess, well, I guess it's going to close if they're they're both going to close if if they don't find a buyer, would create an area that could be considered um, an area where there aren't many options up there. But Bloomington, by and large, has you know a lot of a lot of places that do grocery stores, uh, a co-op, Blooming Foods co-op that do have a lot of healthy options in it. It just it seems to me that all of and all of the places that are selling food are starting to understand this need to sell healthier foods. If it's a grocery store, someplace that sells at the retail level, so uh, you know when you think about. S- sam's club or a walmart they're going to have areas where they actually do have healthier food options so is this more or less you know how the educational piece seems to be very important because even places that have lower prices they're going to have healthy options as well if people are willing to buy them so that's a long statement i guess that i want some reaction to
4: well, I'll go ahead and jump in then. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, when I when I took over the economic development organization, we had two major problems in the county: aging population, aging, declining population, and um, a growing low to moderate income um, demographic. So we thought, how can we fix that? And it really comes back to education as a whole. If you look at more educated, uh, more they're often more fluent communities. And those more affluent communities have whole foods. They have access to organic foods. They have the means to um, access those foods. So we thought, what better way in Tipton County than to just make education as a whole a priority? So whether it's robotics, um, cooking classes at our Boys and Girls Club, um, community gardens, um, engineering classes after school, we've gotten grants to cover all those. And we think that that will yield um, big returns in a decade or so. So it really is, to me, it's a societal change. You have to, you have to teach now. It's kind of like planting trees that you might not ever sit under. There will be generations in the future that will. So you have to educate now, not just about food, but really about everything, because um, just giving access. If I built a Whole Foods with um, cheap food in the middle of um, a low SES community, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that those people are going to go there and shop. And it kind of comes back to the McDonald's question: is there's such a satiation factor with that food that those people really they become addicted to McDonald's. If I can go and buy three things off the dollar menu, and I'm a poor person, and I get a great deal of satisfaction because of the chemicals in that food, I'm probably going to keep going because it's cheap and it it fulfills my immediate need. But long term, there's definitely some big health quest- uh, health problems.
3: Mm-hmm. You brought up I, uh, I think earlier. You asked me about were you asking me about the the Hoosier Hills Food Bank? No, it Mother was Hubbard's? Mother
0: Hubbard's Covered, yeah.
3: yeah, I'm sorry. I have been to Mother Hubbard's okay, Covered. Yeah, yeah right. and, um, and they do have cooking programs that are tremendously successful. I mean, I think they're successful. Um, and I think that that's something that we can do. Is, I, I don't know, Nathan, if you all have something like Mother Hubbard's Covered or the Hoosier Hills Food Bank or a place where the community is coming together to create um, you know, a, a food culture around cooking.
4: Uh, not. It's not really based around cooking. We have uh, food finders uh, comes once a month. We have several food uh, pantries and um, that do very well. But again, the problem too, it it comes back to education because a a lot of times people that donate to food pantries actually do more harm than good. Hmm. They'll simply go through their cupboard, take all the high fructose corn syrup canned, mm-hmm. high sodium canned goods, and say, "Well, I'll just donate that." And it really doesn't do any for the people that need it most.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things that we're doing is a small pilot project with a preschool program, because part of the literature is saying, yeah, we got to start sooner with the education. By the time they even get to school age, their tastes are set and what they want. So we we called it our, our Food Forest Project to try and prevent obesity in this neighborhood. And so we found a little curriculum called um, How It Grows. And so they've been, kids have been learning about how food is grown, and they've also been doing food tasting. Like they had never seen a whole pineapple before. Um, they just have seen it as little squares that they got served. They'd never seen pears. They brought in like four or five different kinds of pears. They had no idea those were all pears. because They'd only knew a little square pear from the fruit cups. So um, all year they've been doing the different tastings of fruits and vegetables, and then they had an opportunity to grow seeds. And now, as I said, they're planting them in their raised bed gardens and they're gonna take care of them. Um, but they, they have now learned the names of the fruits and vegetables. They recognize them, and they, they go around showing their muscles because they're eating their vegetables. And, and hopefully we're you know, sending some of the literature home to the parents, and we, we want to do a follow-up to see if this has changed what they're asking for at home um, and if they're maybe you know, starting to want to have some of those fruits and vegetables at home as well. And we're going to move it into looking at whole grains and um, meat sources as well because this, this flanner farm is also going to raise chickens and goats. So we'll have a chance to see where some of their protein comes from, too. You
0: reminded me, I remember the first time I think I had a, a bite of fresh pineapple versus the stuff that comes out of a can. It was quite an eye-opening experience.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a phone
0: call from Terry, who's from Bedford. Terry, go ahead.
6: Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to go back to what, uh, I can't remember her name, but she was talking about uh, how it would be more cost-effective, for as she said, a family of four to eat at uh, a restaurant, no, I'm McDonald's. Sorry. McDonald's. Uh, let me finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, for twenty twenty-five dollars, but that I don't agree with that uh, because for twenty twenty-five dollars, you get one meal, which is probably not that nutritious. I have to agree with Mr. Crane. If people would uh, as uh, school kids uh, in home economics that they would reinstall home economics and learn how to cook, learn nutrition, for that $20 to $25, you could feed a family for, uh, from cooking at home one cooking <clears throat> uh, for uh, three or four days on that and most likely have a more nutritious meal for those three or four, uh, four days for that, that family. Terry, I, I think you and
3: Lily are on the same page, actually. Yeah, I, I think you misunderstood me. What I was saying is, and I wasn't comparing McDonald's to other types of restaurants. I was comparing McDonald's to cooking at home. And that, um, yeah, McDonald's is really not an affordable option, and that cooking at home generally is more cost-effective.
6: Yeah. Well, the, op- the option of nutrition, though, in restaurants these days, not to mention the cost factor of eating, uh in a restaurant these days, even like McDonald's, uh most people can't afford it these days. Mr. King was talking about the the medium income in Tipton. Uh if you got a family of four, nineteen thousand dollars a year, that doesn't go very far, uh, when you consider all the other uh necessities that you need uh to sustain that family. Uh And uh, and one other thing about the food banks, which are really uh, a great blessing to um, most Hoosiers these days, uh, they seem to be getting uh, food that uh, I can't remember who who mentioned it, but it really isn't that nutritious. They're getting like uh, candy and cookies and like somebody said, high sodium canned goods and fresh vegetables and meats really are becoming a a premium, very much of a luxury item when you go to these food banks. Now, now Mother Hubbard's Cupboard is a bit different. They do focus on nutritional food. But uh, I think, you know, like Mr. Crane said, uh, reinstalling the home economics uh, courses in schools, learning about nutrition, learning how to cook, learning how to take something and prepare it is very essential. Uh, you know, it's it's cost effective too, so that's my thought.
0: Okay, thank you, Terry. I think we got a few reactions in here. Lily, do you wanna? Did you have anything you wanted to to add?
3: Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm a graduate student. I make fifteen thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, you know, access. I sometimes go to the hub to get food, and I think that what's most striking to me is that actually they do on a regular basis have. Uh, fresh fruit and vegetables particularly vegetables um, and so I'm not really sure I, I know that like sometimes at the hub someone people will bring in cookies and cakes and other things um, but I'm not sure that really uh, that the that there are that vegetables are a luxury item in in that case at grocery stores they certainly are
0: well I think also um, perhaps what what our caller was talking about, uh, Hoosier Hills Food Bank, and Julio Alonso is the director there, and Julio will talk about how you know they need to get more fresh fruits and vegetables in, but of yes. course they're dealing a lot in non-perishable foods yeah. when they're getting Agreed. donations. So, you know, Julio, I think, and the folks at the Hoosier Hills Food Bank that, that serves Lawrence County, where he was calling from. Um, I think they're very well aware. They wish they could do better with fresh foods and vegetables, but it's just hard to get those donations.
3: Yeah, and it's great that a lot of farmers, you know, um, the farmers who do make the effort to take the produce that they are unable to sell to the food bank and and to the hub are greatly appreciated.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. All right. We just have just a few more minutes, five more minutes. If you want to give us a call, slip in a call, it's 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. And at noon edition is the Twitter address.
2: Cynthia, I have a question, which might be just completely out of left field, but I'm wondering if you've looked at all into some of the delivery services that, have, that are starting to become really popular on Amazon and lots of different apps. Do you see
1: those as fitting into this
2: at any point in, in the future?
1: I haven't looked at those individually, although um, the, there was a delivery service that was part of the Indy Food Council Food Access Task Force that was on for a while, um, and one of their issues is it's still fairly expensive to use that service because you are paying for the delivery. Uh, they were working to see if they could get um, access so they could do SNAP cards or EBT benefits as a way to help pay for the delivery, you know, the food. Um, and that ran into some issues, so it, it didn't go forward the, the last that I, I, I knew of. Um, so. Yeah, I think, again, if people don't have transportation, if the food can come to them, that's great. They still need to know how to fix the food and, you know, how which ones are, you know, going to give them the most nutritional benefit. Um, the other thing I was going to just mention, too, is that there, we still have some restrictive policies for some of these options that we might want to get into. Um, for instance, some of the neighborhoods we've worked with have looked at wanting to do more like a mobile market or, you know, again, with these farmers that they're dealing with, is there... Um, a way to help circulate the excess, uh, maybe even after the, some of the farmer markets are done, they don't have to haul all the food back when p- other people still need the food, but there are some restrictive policies on some of those activities. So I think you know, there are the things that we can work on from the policy realm as well.
0: Yeah, let me follow up on that. Any of the three of you have any um, any, any particular pet policies that you wish would be that, that our lawmakers would would take a look at on the federal or the state LEVEL. Nate Nathan.
4: Well, uh, uh, Indiana is a very uh, Republican state, and I'm a i am aii call myself a cold water conservative. So I have no illusions of grandeur that they're they're just going to all of a sudden implement the policies that I would like to see, especially with home economics. Um, mm-hmm. They've shown no indication that they're going to reverse their their current path on education, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess some of the things that bother me is it come, kind of comes back to the McDonald's thing. It's a, my background is in business. So I do have an MBA from IU. It's consumer behavior problems. So they see McDonald's and they see the per unit price as maybe a dollar or four dollars for that meal. But when they go to the grocery store, they see the bag of chicken for ten bucks and the vegetables for another ten, and they think well, that's twenty dollars for my meal. They don't break it down in a per-unit price. So some of that is informational restriction, I think, um, that is not available to, to the consumer. It's also an education problem. But you can definitely see how um, information is displayed in grocery stores. is It's very asymmetric. They ne- don't necessarily want the consumer to know all the ingredients um, very readily. They don't want them to see what the price is per unit very readily. Um, and that's all me as a policy problem um, and consumer behavior problem.
0: Okay. We're going to have a quick comment from Rachel from Orange County. She's on the phone. Rachel?
6: Um, yes, I just was listening to this, and I appreciate all the information, but I wanted to say that I've, um, I've been dealing with um, food bank food and Hoosier Hills food and it's just very high sodium and very high sugar so it's it's very unhealthy i end up bringing half of it back the peanut butter always has hydrogenated and i've been off hydrogenated anything for ten years Mm -hmm. so i think it just adds to this whole problem of poverty induced ill health in america that is just epidemic
0: yeah. Th- thanks for joining the program, Rachel. We we really do thanks appreciate. Thanks
6: for the information. It. It's fantastic.
0: Okay, we we are out of time, but I will summarize. I think education has been a key issue today poverty certainly been a key issue today as uh, people try to yeah i
3: lily. think one more thing that we really need to look at is the farm bill in terms mm-hmm. of policy i think mm-hmm. that there are a lot of absolutely. yeah mm-hmm.
0: okay and the farm bill we'll look at the farm bill too <laughs> all right i want to thank our guests today cynthia stone nathan kring and lily brown for being here with us for producer ryan D. batista engineer mike Pashkash, and sarah wetmeyer i'm bob zaltzberg thanks for listening